I say that, like, this is how you know that you still want to do youth ministry and are called to families and teenagers is when your favorite trip is whichever one's coming up next. People ask me all the time, like, what's your favorite one? I'm like, man, I don't know. Like, right now, it's, it's London. It's a spring break mission trip. In a little bit, it'll probably shift, and I'll be going, man, I love Collide Impact Weekend, where we get to go out and send 100-plus kids all around our community to serve. I love Leadership Retreat, though, partly because it is fun. So our students that go through our leadership track, who meet with a mentor a couple times every month and who are reading books and memorizing scripture, they're meeting occasionally on Wednesday nights after Collide to either talk about hands-on leadership or they're meeting here for five or ten minutes to pray for friends who don't know Jesus. We take them down to Port Royal down at uh, North Padre Island. Port Royal is this fantastic resort. It's got this giant swimming pool. I mean, it's like the swimming pool is the length of the resort. Then you can go out across the boardwalk and go out to the Texas beach and play in the tar. And I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great trip. And a lot of what we do is we let them kind of just have fun. It's not a real regulated trip. We do meet usually once in the morning, once in the night, and we talk real practical things about leadership. Uh, we all gather over to the hot tub at night, and we, we talk about uh, hard questions, do a kind of little apologetics game to help prepare them to think with a Christian worldview. But a lot of it's kind of fun. But one of the things that we did last year is I took some butcher paper, big long sheets of paper, and I taped them up in the room where we met. And we had several different things written on it that we asked them during the two or three days we were there to, to fill out. One of them was ideas for Collide series. So I'd ask them, you know, what is it that over the next year we need to dive into? What passages of scripture, what topics, what questions are you wrestling with? And so throughout the course of the week, that list came up with some ideas. And I asked them, hey, even think, you can even help think outside the box and think culturally, like what, what, what TV show like titles that would tie into what we're doing, like The Voice. Well, I get the list and I'm looking at it and there's some great ideas on it. And in the midst of the great ideas, there's one word in the list that says snakes. And I'm reading the rest of the list, and I saw that, and I, I, don't, I don't even know what that means. At first, I thought, maybe somebody's just trying to be funny and say we should do a, a series on snakes, like animals. And th but then I thought, that's, that's not really funny. Like, I, I don't, that, there's so many funnier things they could have written. So that made me ask. And so we're going through the list, and I said, hey, I like this. And I said, what, who wrote this? Who wrote snakes? What, I, don't, I don't understand. And that's when teenagers taught me about slang. If you go to Urban Dictionary, a snake is a person who is sincere or kind that you think is a friend, but then you find out later that they've backstabbed you. And so when they, they gave me that piece of knowledge, went, oh, this makes total sense now. So what we're talking about when we're talking about a snake is what do we do with people in our lives that we think are on our team, but we find out they really don't have our best interests at heart. They have theirs or someone else. It's called a snake. Now, for me, that seems like it seems a bit like melodramatic. I mean, it's a little heavy. Like, I don't have a whole lot of people at 42 years old that, that even if somebody did me wrong, they'd be like, that's a snake. That seems like harsh, right? I don't think we have a lot of people in our lives on a regular basis that are, are stabbing us in the back. Even that that image is a pretty heavy image. If you have a ton of people 
Like if you're sitting here going, yes, I have, I have people that I think are friends all the time. They're stabbing me in the back. One of two things needs to happen. One, you need to reevaluate how you make friends in relationships. Or two, you might need to look inside at why people hate you so much. Because that, that shouldn't be the norm that it happens regularly. But somewhere during the course of this year, you will probably have at least one relationship, again, that you thought was on your team. You thought somebody was a closer friend than they really were, and you experienced some sort of betrayal at, at one level or another. It may not be a backstabbing betrayal, but it's going to be a relationship that goes sideways. And so what we want to do during the course of this series is look at what the Scripture says and go, what do we do with people who maybe they are the definition of snake, that they are the backstabber, or maybe it's just how do we respond to somebody that I thought was on the team that really isn't on the team, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do to love them well, how I respond. I, I, I really, I thought through like, who, who in my life has like stabbed me in the back? And honestly, I, I couldn't, I, I guess if I thought a long time, I could probably find some people that might fit that category, but that isn't really the norm for me. But I do have people, times in my life that I thought got it that didn't. I remember when I was in college, Howard Payne, and I had two really good friends. A guy named Ricky Alstead, who was my roommate. We lived together in the uh, same dorm. And then across the dorm was Lee. And we, we had just made this like tight-knit group of friends. We had some other people that hung out, but the three of us were real close. And we started talking about, you know, as soon as you can get out of the dorm, because we were at a little private Christian school. You had to live in the dorm for uh, three semesters. You know, as soon as that third semester comes up and we can have freedom, you know, no more dorm food, no more dorm beds, no more community showers, we're out of here and we're going to find luxury living in Brownwood, Texas. Um, well, that semester was coming up to an end and as we were talking, Lee was ready, I was ready, but Rick, who was my roommate, we started talking. He said, man, I, I can't move out of the dorm right now. I need to do one more semester. And so I decided, okay, even though I could get my freedom, I'm going to stay with him in the dorm for that extra semester and then we'll move out. And Lee said, I'm out. I can't do it anymore. So he went and got a house with some other guys. Rick and I stayed in the dorm for one more semester and then we finished up the spring semester and summer came. He goes back home for summer. I'm at I'm staying in Brownwood because I'm serving a local church and working a job. And as the summer's kind of coming close to an end, you know, this was before cell phones, so we hadn't really been in contact a lot. I start looking for, what are we going to do, a three-bedroom apartment, a three-bedroom house? What can we find? So I'm just looking. Can't sign a lease yet or anything. We're still three or four weeks away. And got a couple places we're looking at. About that time, I also happened to be at a preteen camp. Now, I'd been, I was serving as a youth minister at a little small church, and with that came, you know, one of the punishments is to take preteeners to camp. And, and what, what you do at preteen camp, if you're a youth minister, is while the preteeners go out and shoot BB guns and things like that, you stay in the dorm with the other youth ministers and talk youth ministry because you don't really like preteeners that much. And so I'm in the dorm talking with a, another guy, and he says, hey, I'm coming to Howard Payne in, in a couple weeks when the fall semester starts. I said, oh, cool, man. So we start, we kind of start talking about things. And he says, I'm from Burleson. And I go, man, I know a ton of people from Burleson. In fact, my roommate, one of my best friends, he's from Burleson. And he said, oh, who is that? I said, his name's Rick. And we start talking. He goes, oh, yeah, I know Rick. And he goes, hey, he got, he got married this summer. That was, that was interesting. 
And I went, no, 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 no. I said, now, there's a whole long backstory that I'll save here. So there's, I said, there's a girl that he's been, that she had gotten pregnant by another guy that he met during the Christmas break, and he was kind of ministering to her, taking care of her, things like that. And I said, but I said, she's like helping with this. I'm living with this family some, but yeah, they're not, they're not an item. And he goes, oh, and I could have I sworn that they got married. I said, no, no, they're not even like dating. We finished the conversation, and you know, it's like that, that comment just like sits and rolls around your head. I'm going, no, that's crazy. So preteen camp ends, and I call his house, and his mom answers the phone. I said, Miss Austin, this is Brett. I said, hey, so crazy question. I just met a guy. He said, Rick got married this summer. And it was complete silence on the other end of the phone. I'm like, hello? Hello? And she says, yeah, he did. He's not coming back to school. Like, oh, okay. So I'm in shock just of all of that happening. But I'm also thinking now we've got two weeks before school starts and all these three-bedroom places I'm looking at, I don't need. I don't need an office. You know, I just need... Now, me and my other, our other roommate named Chris, who's about to be back in school, so it's just going to be the two of us. So Chris comes back that, kind of that, that next day or so. And so I tell him, I said, hey, things have changed. It's just me and you. Rick's not coming back. Tell him the whole story. He's like, man, that is crazy. So we're two weeks out before school starts, and we're getting ready. We're, we're now we're looking for two-bedroom houses, two-bedroom apartments. We narrow down to three. We go look at them. We narrow down to two. And we decide, hey, we like this one. This is in the budget. We'll go do that one. We're good, yes. So we'll go and get the lease tomorrow. As we're driving that day, planning, discussing, planning to go get the lease the next day, he goes, hey, I need to have a conversation with you. I said, yeah. And he said, man, I've been trying to think of how to say this all week long, but I'm not coming back to school in the fall. (laughs) What? I can't afford a one-bedroom like by myself. Like, I, I'm like now, school starting in a week. Dorms are all you know, locked up. I don't know what my plan is. And I've got two guys who were, what I would say, my best friends, who were on my team, that I found out one got married and I wasn't invited to the wedding, nor was I told he wasn't coming back to finish our plans. And another one who hung out an entire week with me went house and apartment shopping the whole time knowing I'm going to be on my own. That's probably more the type of things that happen where we go, what? I, I wouldn't even say it backstab. I wouldn't call them snakes. But that's, what do we do when we have relationships like that that we think are on our team? We think the guy at work or the girl at work is helping us on the project. And the next thing we know, they haven't really done the things that they're supposed to do, and we're high and dry. Well, how do we respond to those people? Here's the good news. Jesus gives us a pretty clear answer to that. So if you have your Bible, go over to Matthew chapter 5. <coughs> we're going to look at a, a pretty, what will be a pretty familiar passage to you. But I think as we dig into it a little deeper, we may, we may realize this passage that is familiar to those that may have grown up in a church that this familiar passage may be a little bit more difficult than we think. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Let me just read a couple of verses, and then we'll come back and look at them individually. Jesus is speaking. He says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father, 
who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Verse 43, Jesus said, you've heard, what, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That makes sense, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we know we ought to love our neighbor. Uh, man, even if, even if we don't know our neighbor, even if they're not our friends, we're all in on loving my neighbor. I'm going to love my friends, of course, and I'm okay with loving my neighbor, reaching out to people who are, they're not in the friend zone, but they are, they're just neutral. I can love them and hate my enemy. Even though it sounds harsh, it seems natural, because here's the deal. If we have an enemy, we have somebody that's not on the team, there's a reason for that. Somewhere along the way, they did something to hurt us. They did something to hurt a family member, or they, they betrayed one of our friends, and because they hurt our friend, we go, hey, you, you're not in my friend category. I don't trust you. Uh, I, I know that you don't have my best interest at heart, and so you're over here in this other category of enemy. We probably don't use that term, enemy, but they're over here. You see, we, we were created in the image of God. And since we were created in the image of God, we have a, 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 an issue with justice because God is just. And so when someone hurts us, hurts a friend, when we experience something that is unjust, it is actually natural for us to kind of push people aside because we, we want justice to happen. And since injustice, injustices happen, man, I, I've got to do something about it. There's this dissonance in my life because things are not just. And we tend to handle it by taking those people and going, you're an enemy, I don't like you, and that's how I'm going to deal with it. I will punish you because justice means punishment. And so since there was injustice, I'll punish you, you're my enemy, I don't want any part of you. That actually makes sense because we're actually created with this sense of justice. But Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yeah. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemy. And we, we, if you've read the Gospels before, if you've grown up in church, this, is, this passage, again, it's not new. Maybe for the first time you're looking at it and going, okay, that's, that's interesting. Most of us have read it. And if we had taken the, am I a Christian quiz and said, hey, should you love your enemies? Most of us would check and go, yes, I know that, I know that I'm supposed to do that. But this is a little bit more intense than what we're thinking, than what we would normally think about. Because here's the deal. When Jesus says to love your enemies, there's a bunch of different words that he could have used. And we, we, you've probably heard this before. There's a word in the Greek for love that you would love a friend. And I would say, hey, I love you. Uh, I, I'm trying to get in the habit with our teenagers on a regular basis. Even in London, we're walking. Every time I spent a day with them, I'd hug every one of them before I left and say, hey, I love you. Because I want them to hear that somebody in their life loves them and verbally says that to them. Now, when I say I love you to one of those teenagers, the word does not mean the same thing when I look at my wife and say I love you. It's a different meaning of the word love. And in the Greek, there's different words that are used to express that, whereas in English, we just use the same word. There's also a word, and it's the one that you've probably heard people talk about the most. It's 
one of the most familiar in the New Testament. It's the Greek word agapao, or as Americans say it, agape. Greek word agapao is this idea of an unconditional love. It's not just a love between friends. It's not a love between spouses. It's a love that has no boundaries. It's the love that's used in the New Testament because it's the love that God has for people. So when Jesus says, I say to you, agapao your enemies, he's, what he's saying is not just love your enemies. He's saying, I need you to love your enemies without condition. Now, see, here's what happens as good-going church folk of the South. We go, well, I love my enemies. And what I mean by loving my enemies is I'm cordial to them because I'm a Christian. This person betrayed me. They got the promotion that I didn't get. They could have been, my kids' college could have been paid for if I had just gotten that job. But that person set me up and then they swooped in behind me and got the job and I didn't get it. And I don't want to talk to that person anymore. I avoid their cubicle. I don't walk past it. I don't invite them to lunch. I want nothing to do with them. I got a neighbor. My neighbor, he's always like messing up his, you know, dogs are always in the bathroom in my yard or, or whatever. They always turn the music up loud. They always have too many people over. And I tell them, hey, I've got small kids at home. And could you turn your music down? And, and they never do. And I'm nice to them. I'm cordial to them. I don't, I don't do things to sabotage them. And so what we do is we, we check the boxes because I've been kind and because I've been cordial, I've loved them. But that's not the definition of unconditional love. See, love would mean this at its fullest sense, that you lay down your life for that other person. Love means that I would take my needs and my wants and my desires, and I would sacrifice them and put them at the foot of the cross so that someone else can have their needs, their wants, their desires. That's what love is. So so when we see love our enemies, Jesus is not asking us to be kind. He's not asking us to simply be cordial. He's asking us to love our enemies like he loved us. And here's the crazy thing. Let this sink in for a minute. When Jesus went to the cross and laid down his life for you and me, we were his enemies. We hadn't done anything to, to be on his team. All we had done is lived a life of selfishness, of, of me first, of putting myself on the throne. And it was at that moment when we were enemies of God that he revealed to us unconditional love and said, I will love you even though you don't deserve it one bit. So before we walk out and go, yeah, I got loving my enemies down, make sure we're not checking off the kind and cordial box and that we are in our discipleship process. We're walking with Jesus in such a way that we can say, I would be willing to lay down my life <coughs> for the person who's betrayed me. Because that's what real discipleship looks like. That parent, there's the kids that talked about your kids, bad, gossip, and you're like, not only do I don't like that kid, I don't like that kid's parents. Would you be willing to give up what you have in order for them to succeed? Because that's what agapao, unconditional love, looks like. And get this. When Jesus is talking to people and he's saying these words, when he says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Remember that Jesus is talking to a people 
who were under Roman occupation. So every day of their life, this was not a, a, a word from Jesus that was you know, out there in the, floating around the cosmos. This was every day of their life, these people that Jesus was talking to were walking by Roman soldiers who did not have their best interest at heart. Roman soldiers who could force Jewish people to do just about anything they wanted because they had weapons <coughs> and the backing of Rome. These, these Jewish people were working hard, scraping a living, and they're having to give taxes to a government that didn't, agree, didn't, didn't have their best interest at heart. They were giving it to a, a church or to a, to a, a government that, that worshiped pagan gods. And they were, they were a very religious people who believed in Yahweh, the one God, and they're having to give their money to support these other temples and other places. Jesus talking to people who, who really felt like they had some enemies. They really had some people who didn't have their best interests at heart who weren't on the team. And so this is an everyday experience for the people that Jesus is, walking, that Jesus is talking to when he says, hey, you need to agapao your enemies, love them unconditionally. They were working it out every day and trying to follow Jesus. And we are too, or we should be. There's no limits to unconditional love. There's no enemy that we go, you know what, well, this group of enemies, I can unconditionally love them because they did this and this. But these people over here, they did this, 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 and this. We're still called to unconditionally love. Now, let, let me say this. We talked about forgiveness a few weeks ago. When we were doing the New Life in Christ. and They brought up some conversation and some people emailed me and were saying, hey, how do we walk in this? Because I want to forgive, but there's been some things that have happened to me in my life that I, I can't go back to. Totally understandable. Talked to some teenagers this week. Talked to them about forgiving people and giving grace. And I said to them, though, if I'm talking to a, a lady who's being abused by her husband, what we're going to say, what I'm going to say to her is, hey, you have to figure out in your walk with Jesus how to forgive, how to give grace, how to love in a way that you want his best interests at heart. That doesn't mean you go back to the house to get beaten. Okay? So... We can love people well and still have boundaries. But in our heart, we, we know that we're walking with Jesus and we go, you know what? I would though, if I needed to give up whatever I need to give up for him or for her, or for whatever, I would do whatever God called me to do in order to love that person well. That's the path to discipleship. And then he says this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So how do we, how do we love unconditionally? How do we move to the place where the people that are over here on the, on the wrong team that we go, hey, I, I want to love them well. I want to be like that. Jesus actually gives us the first step. He says, you start praying for those who persecute you. Every day, you start looking. We'll talk about that here in a second. Move into some application. Every day, <coughs> you spend your time directing your heart to the Father on their behalf. Max Lucado, who's an author and pastor in San Antonio, wrote a a book years ago called The Applause of Heaven. And in it, he tells a story about a guy named Daniel. Daniel was a muscle-bound guy, a dangerous-looking guy who had a brother who had actually swindled him out of some money. And then the brother disappeared. And Daniel had, had made a, an oath. He said, next time I see my brother, if I ever see that guy again, I will break his neck. And then a funny thing happened along the way. A few years later, Daniel met Jesus. And his life began to change. 
And the way that God does things, Daniel saw his brother again. And I want to read you a passage from that book, The Applause of Heaven, because I think Max Lucado could tell it way better than I could. He says this, A few months later, Daniel became a Christian. Even so, he couldn't forgive his brother. One day, the inevitable encounter took place on a busy avenue. This is how Daniel described what happened. I saw him, but he didn't see me. I felt my fist clench and my face get hot. My initial impulse was to grab him around the throat and choke the life out of him. But as I looked into his face, my anger began to melt. For as I saw him, I saw the image of my father. I saw my father's eyes. I saw my father's look. I saw my father's expression. And as I saw my father in his face, my enemy once again became my brother. The brother found himself wrapped in those big arms, but in a hug. The two stood in the middle of the river of people and wept. And Daniel's words bear repeating. When I saw the image of my father in his face, my enemy became my brother. Look at what Jesus says. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Look at verse 46. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. I think I get caught when I read this passage on loving your enemy. But Jesus adds to it and he says this. When you love your enemy unconditionally, when you're willing to have the type of love for your enemy that God had for his, that's when you're living like a child of the king. That's when you're starting to experience what heaven come to earth looks like. Because you start to see your enemies through your father's eyes. And they look a lot like brothers. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We're going to have some time to talk and discuss I'm going to tell you one last story to wrap it up, but in your circle, there is a yellow post-it note, stack of them. Put them on a chair, see some on the floor. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Here's the application, the take-home. And I'm asking you all to do it. It's, it's really easy for us to come and sit and then not do. Now, if, as we've talked to this message and this week, as you go through life and you reflect back on Matthew 5, what I want you to do first and foremost is listen to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, hey, I need you to do this, or I want you to do that. Please, please, please go do this, or please go do that. But as we're processing, as we're trying to listen to the Holy Spirit, I'm going to try every week to give us things that are application that we can, we can do to put us in the flow of what the Holy Spirit's saying. So what I'm going to ask you to do, every one of us, I'm going to ask every kid on Sunday, uh, on Wednesday to do this. I'm going to ask you to take one of those sticky notes during your small group time in a second. And if you have a Bible... Maybe put it on the inside of your Bible or put it someplace where you'll see it again. I mean, probably the front of your Bible would be best, but it might, you know, come off in traffic today, walking back and forth from church. Put it someplace inside your phone case where it sticks out, just so that you'll remember that when you get home, you can put it in a secure place. And here's what I want you to do on that, that sticky note. I want you to either write the name of a person, the initials of a person, or something that would remind you of a person that pops into your mind when you think enemy, betrayal, not on your team. Maybe it's something not as heavy as those. Maybe when I say, hey, who is it in your life 
that likes to pretend like you're close, but, but you know they really are looking out for themselves and not you. Write that person's name down. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. For the course of this series, for the next four weeks, would you, every day, pray for that person? And here, let, let me clarify what that means to I don't mean that you put it on your bathroom mirror or something like that or put it on your Bible and, and you've got... I'm trying to think of a name without pulling out somebody's name that's in the room. You've got to get a real... Norman. We have no Normans here. I'll go with Norman so nobody's offended. You've got Norman's name on your, on your Bible or wherever. And I'm not talking about the prayer that goes like this. Lord, I pray that you be with Norman and we go about our day. I'm talking about praying for Norman's life, his family, his walk with the Lord, praying for your interaction with him, praying for the things that Norman's done to you that, that feels like betrayal. Again, I'm not talking about having to have an hour-long prayer time over Norman, but let's, let, let's pray for him. Again, not just the check the box, I'm kind and cordial, not just to check the box, I said his name, but that we spend some time turning our heart towards God the Father on behalf of the person who's our enemy. And what's going to happen is you're going to start seeing change in you because you're following Jesus' words to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. So please, I'm going to beg you, for the sake of not just of your kids if you have teenagers or your college students or young adults if you're in our uh, kids not at home anymore group. But for you, for you in your discipleship, pray for your enemies. It's a guy who lives in San Marcos now. Actually, an acquaintance of mine. His name is Chris Carrier. 1974, Chris was in fifth grade. Lived in Miami. And it was the last day of school for Christmas break. He had just gotten out of school and he's walking home, getting ready for Christmas. He's two houses away from his home, and a motorhome pulls up, stops. And the guy gets out, calls him by name, says, Chris. And says, hey, I'm a friend of your dad's. And starts talking about Chris's dad. And he says, hey, I'm in the process of planning a party for your dad. Do you want to help me plan the party? And fifth grade boy Chris says, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. And the guy says, well, hey, the guy's name is David. David says, jump in the car, jump in the motorhome, and, and we're going to go. Chris jumps in the motorhome, and David drives it about uh, right outside the outskirts of the city limits of Miami. Pulls the motorhome over and says, hey, I'm lost. He says, hey, here's this map. See, see if you can on the map find, names the place. And so this fifth grade boy opens the map and starts looking. And what he doesn't know is, is this guy named David has grabbed an ice pick and walks up behind Chris and stabbed him multiple times. As Chris turns around, and as, as a fifth grade boy trying to figure out what happens, this guy David throws him out of the motorhome, stabs him multiple times in the chest. This fifth grade boy Chris is pleading for his life, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. The guy picks him back up, throws him in the motorhome, and Chris said later, down, as, as he recollected the uh, memories, he said, he remembered asking, why are you doing this? And he said, because your dad cost me a lot of money. They drive an hour away out into the Everglades. And he says, get out of the car. Your dad's going to come pick you up. As he gets out of the car, David pulls a gun out and shoots Chris right in the temple. Body falls to the ground. He drives away. What he didn't know is that somehow, in the miraculous hand of God, the bullet passed through his temple, came out the other side of his head without killing him or causing any brain damage. 
that fifth grade boy laid in the Everglades during December for six days until a hunter came across his body and found him and survived. He's blind in one eye. Survived. Police got involved, began looking for the guy. Chris didn't know who the guy was. They gave a, he gave the sketch artist the, the description. The sketch artist came up and looked like a guy that had used to work for his dad. And this was the, it was actually the guy, David, but the police could never tie him to the crime, even though they knew the guy drove a motorhome and things like that, had an alibi, things that fit. For years, it was an open case. When Chris turned 13, he became a follower of Jesus. Somewhere along the way, he saw a picture of David and realized that's the guy. In fact, as the police kept the open case and, and, and I mean, for years, circled back around, Chris actually told media and police one time, one, at one point, I know who did it. I'm not going to say who it is for whatever reason. 22 years after the event, David is in a nursing home in poor health. Glaucoma set in. He's blind. And they know that the time is near. And one of the detectives who had really followed the case, the detective who was like, I, I, I know it's this guy. I just can't prove it. One day I'm going to prove who it is. Calls Chris and says, hey, the guy that I think did it is basically, he's not in the hospital, he's a nursing home, but hospitalized and doesn't have long to live. So Chris and a friend go to the nursing home. He walks in for the first time in 22 years, sees the guy who stabbed him with an ice pick and shot him and left him in the Everglades to die as a fifth grade boy. The gentleman's blind. And Chris asks him some questions about the event and the guy confesses that he did it. And Chris said, if you were ever able to see that boy, would you, what would you want to say to him? And the guy laying on what would soon become his deathbed said, I'd want to apologize. Chris revealed who he was and said, I'm the kid. And for the next several weeks, Chris visited him and they built a relationship. And Chris had the opportunity to share what Jesus had done in his own life. Offered forgiveness and grace to the guy that tried to murder him. And led that guy to Jesus Christ. And three weeks later, that gentleman died on his deathbed. That's a powerful story of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. It's a powerful story of loving your enemy. I'm going to be honest. Someone stabbed me with an ice pick and shot me. It'd be hard to give. Even 22 years later. But when Jesus Christ gets a hold of your heart and you start walking the disciples' path, and you get to the point where you have the person that's the snake in your life, person that's not on your team, and you love them unconditionally. You pray for them like you would pray for your most loved family and friends. God not only does a work in your life, but he begins to do a work in theirs. And I think every one of us would agree we could use that kind of work of God in our life. I'm going to pray for us. And then you're going to have 20 minutes or so to talk. When you open up the app, it will say the voice because our kids are still, I haven't changed the, the app out because we're starting something new, they're starting something 
or finishing something old. They've got the spring break stuff, but you'll see, it'll say parents and whatever today's date is, uh, 318. And there's the questions for today. And then I'll upload parent questions for you to talk with the kids uh, tomorrow so that you'll have those. And I'll get the logo up and it'll change to, to snakes. Pray for us. Talk in your group about how do we flesh this out? How do we live it out? Okay, let's pray.